0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts,
1: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 207, recorded for April 5th, 2023. AWS puts up a new VPC lattice to ease the growth of your connectivity. Good evening, Matt and Jonathan. How's it going?
0: Good. How you doing? Eh,
1: it's not Friday, so I'm kind of sad about that. Uh, and it's been kind of a long week already, so you know, just trying to make it through, trying to make it through this week,
2: yeah, something's going on with this week because I swear everything's going sideways this week on me
1: uh, I, I, q one to q two pain i don't I don't really know what it is it's yeah but the fact that it's April kind of still blows my mind because I swear we just talked about Christmas and predictions and reinvent and already it's April and we're a quarter in I just I don't know where the time is going. Well, I do know that the cloud teams, uh, except for Google, uh, are developing a lot of features and capabilities. So let's get into it this week with AWS. First up, new self-service provisioning of Terraform open source configurations with AWS Service Catalog, which means you can now define your Service Catalog products and the resources with either CloudFormation or Terraform and choose the tool that best aligns your processes and expertise or doesn't have vendor lock-in. So you choose the one you want. Uh, this removes at least some of my personal resistance to service catalog, although then I went and looked at Google service catalog, and they already supported Terraform, and I'm not using it in my day job with Google right now, so clearly not enough to make me move off this I-don't-like-service-catalog stance that I'll continue to have for a while. Uh, interesting enough, it does allow you to basically execute Terraform code uh, it leverages IAM roles to basically handle your deployment and you can use least privileged roles, which does take a lot of the thunder out of Terraform cloud and enterprise capabilities if you're looking for some simple Terraform uh, open source options. So maybe uh, AWS will continue to expand on this and how do you continue to manage state for your Terraform deploys and just kill CloudFormation, just you know, nuke that from Orbit and start over.
2: Yeah, with so many things you use CloudFormation under the hood, how else are you going to launch your Elastic Beanstalk clusters?
1: I'm not going to because <laughs> Beanstalk's great until you find that sharp edge and then it's real sharp.
0: And can we define the items in the service catalog using Terraform or can we just deploy things using the service catalog using Terraform?
1: Ooh, can you use Terraform to define your service catalog? And That's Terraform all the way down, man. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Got
2: a
0: little bit of Terraform
2: inception going on there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think I'd love use Service Catalog either, but I guess it's like um, an alternate way to, to restrict access to certain things. You know, If you only let people deploy from the Service Catalog, it gets pretty easy to say you can only use this instance type or you can only use this configuration of uh, RDS or something else. So it's, it's, it's nice guardrails for people. But. It, it's useful when you want
2: to give people that don't know what they're doing very specific things. Um, so if you're in a large organization, really just defining exactly what people can do and I've seen it used a couple times decently. It's the best I got with that, um, you know to actually help implement it with teams that don't know what they're doing. But to me it really starts to remove a lot of the you know really innovation that you let people kind of iterate over. Um, so it's a good starting point, but if you really want your teams to leverage the cloud and innovate, I feel like it does start to limit some of the you know different aspects of the cloud that because it's only the stuff that you've already built the catalog for.
0: Yeah, certainly a certain class of users who need something like this, but it would also be nice for people deploying things from the Service Catalog to be able to see that infrastructure as code so they can take it, learn from it, and then do the next deployment sort of natively the next time.
1: Yeah. That'd be cool. Uh, I mean, this is really more for, like, I've always seen Service Catalog as an ITSM construct for IT shops who want to offer very cookie-cutter services to their business, Um where I work in SaaS, it doesn't make as much sense to me. <laughs> That's part of the reason why I don't like it. But uh, yeah, I think if you have the use case where this makes sense, I think it's awesome to have it. But uh, don't get don't drink the ITSM Kool Aid on Service Catalog. Uh, I did just do some quick uh, research here. Uh, Terraform does have resources for Service Catalog, so yes, you can create your AWS Service Catalog with Terraform to then publish Terraform. So uh, inception can happen. Excellent. And the top is still spinning. Uh, AWS Supply Chain is now generally available, which allows you to mitigate risks and lower costs with increased visibility and actionable insights of your supply chain. Uh, for those of you who forgot what Supply Chain was, it was announced at reInvent, uh, and so this is one of uh, one of the many, many products now coming out GA. Uh, for those who forgot, it's a cloud application that mitigates risk and lowers costs with unified data, machine learning-powered actionable insights, and built-in contextual collaboration, and it's meant to connect to your existing ERP or Supply Chain Management Systems. Uh, the main features include a data lake using machine learning models that have been pre trained for supply chains to understand, extract, or transform data. Uh, Real time visual maps to see where your current inventory is in the world and the quantity and the health at each location. Uh, provide you actual insights, which are automatically generated for potential supply chain risks. Recommend actions to you, allow you to collaborate on your inventory and do demand planning. Uh, there are no required long term contracts. Uh, but you do pay for all these things. Uh, so supply chain data lake storage is $0.28 cents per gigabyte per hour for the first 10 gigabytes. <laughs> and greater than 10 gigabytes is $0.25. Cents. Uh, so that's pretty expensive. Supply chain insights is the first 100,000 product SKU localization combinations will cost you $0.40. Cents. The next 900000 will be an additional $0.13. Cents, and greater than that will cost you uh, basically $0.6.5 cents 5 uh, supply chain data, demand planning data usage is $0.30 cents for the first $100,000, 10 cents for the next 900000 and uh, $0.3.5 for every, everything over a million. Uh, but there is a free tier, guys, with 1,000 products, SKU, location, combinations, and 10 gigs of data storage in your free tier per month. So uh, you can use 10 gigs of data for one hour,
0: and you start paying. Probably not saying I'm going to use, but uh, what an awesome service to offer. This must be something that many companies have tried to solve over and over again. And um, this is the first time I've ever heard of a, a like an integrated logistics product like this. It's pretty neat.
1: I mean, if I'm a retailer, I definitely want to give all of my logistics supply chain data to Amazon. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no problem there at all. No. Yeah, no concerns.
2: Only if you can actually figure out how the pricing works. Just sitting here trying to understand, you know, the complexity of that pricing models with the, you know, I know there are different services within the larger scope, larger service, but still the pricing there makes me just scratch my head going, okay, so what?
1: How is that different than any of the other AWS pricing?
2: Uh, yeah, if you look at a lot of the other ones, I think I just have more experience with them. <laughs> <laughs> or I just don't care it, as much about them, and I'm like, all right, let's just go and we'll deal with it, and we'll look back you know, day over day and figure it out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you right now, we will probably never, ever talk about supply chain again uh, because none of us care about it in our day jobs. But uh, yeah, mostly to make fun of the pricing, I wanted to come talk about
0: it. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you could optimize for different things. Optimizing for time delivery or optimizing for cost of transport or in fact, optimizing for things like, you know, least impacts the environment. Stuff like that would be kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, they do have some really neat visualizations right now. You know, looking through the blog post, which gives you a bunch of screenshots and you know, shows you different actionable insights, you know, stock out of, out uh, type warning. So I, I assume this is something they can add over time more yeah. capabilities, like, you know, the ability to rebalance, uh, you know, inventory across warehouses and, and things like that that you would want to do, of course, uh, yeah. if you had a massive warehouse fleet <laughs> that you want to maintain the inventory for. So I can see, you know, this getting more features over time and I do expect that we'll see either an open sourcing of some of this capability or something that, you know, will you to be cool and enable you to do more. I'm actually surprised they don't
2: have something more around uh, perishable items, given whole foods and a lot of that type of stuff. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues with food. My family's in the meat industry for multiple generations, but, you know, getting product in, you know, FIFO type cues first in, first out, but getting that product out, making sure you don't, you know, buy more and all that type of stuff. So I'm surprised that's not built into phase one of some of these things because I'm sure they have it.
0: Mm, that's interesting. I did laugh at the blog post. So when I when I saw, you know, if you click on the warehouse, it shows you kind of a a three D visualization of the, the the map around your location. Like just because that's really important. I guess somebody had to use that uh, that tool.
1: <laughs> we had to use a 3D, the three D the three D graphic <laughs> engine somehow, right? So <laughs> uh, I I like the fact that the collaboration is not with Chime. So that was, that was my one fear when I saw collaboration. I was like, oh no, are they going to use Chime for this product? And it's all embedded right into the supply chain. So it's nice. You can come work right inside the console of this. All right. Well, one of the most exciting reInvent announcements is finally generally available, and that is the VPC Lattice. Lattice, which we talked about after reInvent, gives you a consistent way to connect, secure, and monitor communication between your services. And with VVC Lattice, you can define policies for network access, traffic management, and monitoring to connect compute services across instances, containers, or serverless applications. Uh, Since the preview was announced, they've added several new exciting capabilities, including uh, the ability to use custom domains (laughs) automatically. Uh, When using HTTPS, you can configure SSL and TLS certificates, so you can do man-in-the-middle. Uh, You can deploy open-source AWS Gateway API controllers to your VPC Lattice with the Kubernetes uh, experience. It uses the uh, Kubernetes Gateway API to let you connect services across multiple Kubernetes clusters and services running on EC2 containers and serverless. Uh, You can point to ALB or NLB as a target service, and it supports IP address target types uh, of IPv6. So it's IPv6 compatible. Uh, Lattice has no charge for the first 300,000 requests every hour, and you only pay for requests above that threshold. Uh, the per hour pricing is uh, basically two and a half cents per hour and two and a half cents per gigabyte and 10 cents per 1 million requests. So that's three dimensions that you have to calculate in your fancy calculator spreadsheet. I'll try to figure this one out. Uh, their examples of lattice pricing uh, hurt my brain just a little bit. <laughs> so in their first example, they gave a service with low request rates in U S East or uh, North Virginia with an associated of hundred services to it. And in a month, each service processes hundred gigabytes of data at 200,000 requests per hour. And so basically they say the monthly side of this will be uh, $1, or $1,825 per month uh, with monthly data processing charges of $250 a month, making your total bill $2,075 per month between your hourly charges and your data processing charges. But because you only had 200,000 requests, you didn't pay for those requests. Uh, so that's a low usage is 200,000 requests. I can't imagine what a high volume looks like. But uh, pricing examples are in the blog article. You can check those out. Uh, if you're curious how to try to calculate across these three dimensions. And I always love these uh, opaque things like, how many requests does my web app use that I now have to figure out, which I never considered ever in my history of my life before this book?
0: Yeah, we talked about the viability of this being really revolving around the what the cost model is going to look like, and it's not terrible. I mean, I, mean, I guess you, you take out the cost of um, like private endpoints, or you take out the cost of BBC peering, um, things like that. So I guess there's a slight uplift on uh, at least the the per gig charge. Not not terrible, but really, I mean, what a fantastic way to just make the constraints of networking just disappear. Um, Been a long time coming. Super happy about it. Agreed.
1: And all of a sudden, GCP and Azure weep (laughs) that we don't have something (laughs) as good, Uh, unfortunately.
0: I mean, service mesh has always been very heavily Kubernetes oriented. And so, this is, I mean, really it's kind of like cross BPC, cross account service mesh that also lets you talk to non containerized workloads,
1: which is great. I mean, yeah.
0: it was impossible to do it before this.
2: So. Yeah. The amount of time and energy I've spent over the years doing cross account, cross organization, peering, you know, direct connects to handle VPNs, anything along those lines that this, solves a good chunk of those problems, you know pays for itself just in the engineering time, let alone you know maintenance and all the other toil that goes with all these things. So I think that even though the pricing you know is complex, you know I, I think it's definitely something that will get a lot of value
0: out of real fast. It's definitely pushing people down the microservices architecture path because these are HTTP requests only. So there's still if you still need networking for you know SQL server access and the other non http traffic, you're still gonna have that other infrastructure in place. But you know, hopefully people migrate away from that stuff.
1: There's a hope. Yeah. <laughs> Always a hope. Well, the guard duty now supports Amazon EKS runtime monitoring. Uh, this allows you to detect runtime threats from over 30 security findings to protect your EKS cluster. The new capabilities use a fully managed EKS add-on that adds visibility into individual container runtime activities such as file access, process execution, and network connectivity. Duty can tell you specific containers within your EKS cluster that are potentially compromised and detect attempts to escalate privileges from an individual container to the underlying Amazon EC2 host and the broader AWS environment. Uh, combining EKS runtime monitoring can be combined with audit log uh, gives you the optimal EKS protection of both the control plane and down to the individual pod container operating system level. So Duty continues to get
0: more powerful every day. I know, not got much to say about that really other than are they competing with somebody else in this space or is it just like a just extra visibility into sort of internal logs and things?
1: I mean, there's a bunch of Kubernetes open source uh, security tools out there. There's, of course, Palo Alto and what's the other one? Aqua Security, et cetera, That do container based security. So there's, there's a bunch of interesting competitive uh, companies to these. But uh, you know, is it a big market or not? I don't know. But uh, it's nice to see it native to the platform for Kubernetes on AWS.
2: Yeah, it also helps the security story of like container rot over time. You know, or somebody getting into a container and not cycling through them fast enough. Um, so it helps the story of look we now have active monitoring there and from a security perspective you know it just adds a little bit more depth to your security so you don't just have that top level like cool we scanned the container but this container's been running for two months because nothing's caused it to scale or it's just one of one type of thing so it does add that you know extra level of security which isn't a bad thing and you know you can really see that they're really trying to keep growing the guard duty platform to you know, start to support, you know, not, you know, the EBS release earlier this year, or I guess last year at this point, you know, they're going more into EKS and containers and everything else. So I'm curious to see what else they continue to add onto the platform.
1: Sort of surprised me. This wasn't saved for reinforce, which I think is coming up pretty quickly. We're not tracking events this year. Like we did last year, mostly because it got old real quick. I thought it's uh, reinforce is June 13th through the 14th, I think in Anaheim. So, you know, it was important enough they got it out now. <laughs> but uh, Hopefully that means there's good things coming at Reinforce. Yeah, hopefully. Or it reinforces a total bust like it was last year, and we'll all make fun of it. <laughs> so we'll work on the two ways. Uh, the pricing on this EKS runtime monitoring, by the way, is uh, for the first 500 vCPUs uh, per month, is a fifty per vCPU per month. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. And yeah. then uh, after... After the 500, it goes to 75 cents per vCPU, and over 5,000 vCPUs, it hits 25 cents per VC, vCPU per month. So, uh, comparatively to, to Aqua and some of the other tools out there, maybe it's a good savings. Do your math and work it out before you buy. So pricey, though.
0: I mean, why why choice per vCPU instead of per container or per you know per, per workload?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Because what if you have like one container that you use in multiple pods and services, like. Now you're paying every, for every vCPU versus just the one pot, you know, one container image, which would have the same vulnerability across all of them. So it seems like a good way to
0: goose the, uh, the dollars for the bottom line. I really do wonder, day you know how, how prevalent things like people breaking in, into containers and running you know, cryptocurrency mining actually is, or whether it's just one of these, we need to appease this, uh, this intangible risk that the security people think exists.
2: I would think it's yeah, I'm not really sure. I would think it's less of that or of more of like hey there's a vulnerability in this package that got, you know, exploited. You're still working on building a new container getting into production. So now we know that at least this container has been compromised. Let's kill it, let it reload type of thing with at least a new container that is not compromised. That's kind of the least the story I've always thought was more like okay, something happened to the container. Let's just destroy it. And let it rebuild more so than someone's crypto mining. But let's be honest, people use GitHub actions to crypto mine. So, you know, there's a way will there's a way to crypto mine at this point.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess if during build time you weren't aware of a vulnerability in a package and you built it into the container.
2: Yeah.
0: I guess with updates information you can you could verify that at runtime. That's reasonable.
2: Like the most recent open SSL and having to get that patched out there, you know, if that happened to come up, you know you at least know that it's there. Maybe you're still building your package so you can you know know to cycle through these more often or anything along those lines.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure Architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with the juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Valkorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the Cloud Pods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: All right. AWS DataSync now supports copying data from Azure Blob Storage, which, if you remember, we talked about how unique it was that Azure had a tool called azCopy that allowed you to copy data from S3 to Azure Blob. Uh, and you know now you can set up a really cool loop where you have your AWS data sync, take your blob data, and then your blob sync take the data back from S3, and that's how you can burn a lot of money really quickly. So uh, in egress charges as well as data storage charges. So you know do be careful with these. Uh, but nice to see uh, that there's some uh, us two behavior happening between AWS saying Azure is trying to take our business, we're going to take your business too. Here's a tool. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean it's a great migration path tool
2: for you know companies looking to shift clouds or shift workloads to you know other clouds and they both have you know it now so at least there's options of how to move that data but like you said egress costs get real expensive real fast
0: and make a good backup solution too I guess you know back it up in a different region
1: in a different cloud
0: different cloud provider yeah different cloud
1: yeah it yeah. helps you with your uh, all of your concern about uh, ransomware potentially
2: unless if you've copied the ransomware the encrypted Hey,
1: hey, hey! Don't hey, think hey. too
2: far. Sorry, We're too
1: far. <laughs> don't don't think about it too much. Don't think about it too much because like these are conversations that I have to have all the time with security people. Like, so you want a system that will take the data and put it somewhere else, but how do you prevent the ransomware from going with the data? Like, oh, I don't like. You know, they never really think through, <laughs> but on surface they checked a box. So, uh, don't we don't want to burst those bubbles? So. Uh, pretty slow week for GCP. Uh, they do have this blog article where they basically say what's new with Google Cloud this week, and uh, they had two things for this week. Uh, neither one of them really that new. Um, but uh, I did see one here that apparently at the Data Cloud and AI Summit last week they did introduce the new Looker Modeler. Uh, there's no blog post linked to link to for this, but uh, apparently the Looker Modeler is a single source of truth for BI metrics. Uh, the Looker model organization can benefit from consistent governed metrics that define data relationships and progress against business priorities and consume them in BI tools such as Connected Sheets, Looker Studio, Looker Studio Pro, Microsoft Power, BI, Tableau, and ThoughtSpot. Because everyone's using ThoughtSpot. That's one I would have mentioned. Uh, so there you go. Uh, I don't have anything else to say about that. But apparently it happened. But no, no, maybe we'll get a press release next week. I'll let you know more. Keep you posted. But otherwise, there's no news. So we had to talk about something for GCP. Moving on to Azure, (laughs) (laughs) announcing uh, Azure Firewall Enhancements for troubleshooting network performance and traffic visibility. Uh, The new logging and metric enhancements increase the visibility and provide more insights into traffic processed by the firewall. IT security administration may use a combination of the following to root cause app performance issues, including a latency probe metric, a flow trace log, and a fat flows log. Why you got to be all judgy like that, Azure? Uh, of course, Azure Firewall is a cloud-native firewall as a service, so I don't want any of those things. i like you just to provide that to me in a dashboard or security tool that would tell me these things are broken, uh, but instead you're going to let me charge I me mean, a bunch of money to use these other three tools, so thanks for that. appreciate it, I guess, uh, but I prefer not worrying about this
0: in my cloud. Thanks. Um, I like the visibility. That's literally what I was going to say. But I don't want to have to worry about it. I, mean, I don't want to have to worry about this stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like I want to see it when somebody says, "Well, it has to be the Azure managed firewall." It's causing the problem. They're like, I like the data to show them that no, it's not. Uh, but you know, honestly, I I just want my cloud to work, and I don't want it to think about it. And you guys have Defender technology that'll give me you know active insights that I need to actually alert and worry about on my firewall. And the rest of it's just to prove everyone else that it's not the firewall, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, I guess more so than that, though. If if you have anomalous activity. Things like fat flows are useful because it's it's it basically ranks the or lists the the flows by highest throughput through through, through the, the device through the firewall. So if all of a sudden you have these these flows which are shipping way more data than you ever expected based on you know historical usage, you have a good idea that something's amiss.
1: Apparently, they're moving away from the fat flows and uh, trying. to say the top flows log or industry known as fat flows. Log shows the top connections that are contributed to the highest bandwidth in a given time frame through the firewall. Uh, so apparently they're trying to move away from fat flows, but uh, they still have it here. So. portly flows. <laughs> <laughs> top flows, which doesn't sound great either. I mean, nothing. Anytime you're using flows in as a verb, in this case, it's a little weird. So
0: like heavy flows. That's even worse. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was trying not to say. But yeah. thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Yeah.
2: Yep. Well, I got to learn what fat flows slash top flows were today because I've never heard that terminology in the past. But no, like you guys have...
1: I mean, I've looked for that data many times in the past. I didn't know how to name. So now I know what to Google for at least. Half the battle. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I check this? Because that's, that's one of those things you always run to is like, you know, hey, my firewall's overloaded or, you know, your data you know, your SAN is overloaded on a port. And you're like, well, I want to know what the, you know, most active connection is in this period of time. And like, now I know I, I should be Googling for for fat flows
0: <laughs> apparently. So... Yeah, the uh, I to, to, okay. I was gonna say the fun
2: thing about all this is you still have to understand the whole KQL language to really dive in and get all the data out because it looks like it's not like in a nice easy dashboard. You still have to like write the KQL in order to get all that data. And KQL, from my daytime job experience, is not the easiest language to fully pick up quickly. And I wouldn't expect a you know off-the-shelf network administrator who's trying to configure a firewall for the first time to Azure to really fully understand KQL and to be able to dive into these
1: logs that easily. Yeah, I didn't notice that in the screenshot. Mm-hmm. It's KQL. That's awful. That's awful.
0: <laughs> I mean, it really needs to be tied into some of the security products. But I will say that the the trace logs, the, the trace flows are super nice, even though, even though you need to use KQL to pull them out. But it's, it's really nice because you can avoid having to deploy Wireshark on for a Windows server just to troubleshoot something where you can just do the entire capture through the you know, the, the virtual firewall.
1: Well, you know, maybe this is building blocks of something bigger from Azure. So, you know, stop, start, start somewhere, and then give me a nice dashboard and automation and AI with all your Chat GPT stuff. What would I actually hear about? So, uh, oh, by the way, there was a uh, there was an Azure AI announcement today uh, that I ejected from the show notes because I was like, nope, we're not talking about it again. It was it was as good as last one last week. was like, hey, we support third party companies. It was it was at that level again, so I said no, I, I rejected it.
0: Yeah, uh, the plugins. Yeah, that's that's actually a pretty decent feature, but. Don't you talk
1: about it. Exactly. All right. and then our last Azure story is the DDoS IP protection is now, I believe exiting uh, exiting preview into general availability. This new SKU, which I know Jonathan loves, of Azure DDoS protection uh, allows you to meet all of your small business needs. Uh, there are several key features of DDoS in general at uh, Azure, including massive mitigation capacity and scale protection against attack vectors, native integration into the portal, seamless protection, adapted tuning, and everything that I want that firewall thing to do, automated. Uh, and integration directly into Micro Sentinel and Microsoft Defender for cloud. Uh, but the dig, the big difference for small business, uh, if you were wanting to know like what you're getting or not getting, uh, you're not going to get the rapid response support, so you're on your own when the DDoS hits, <laughs> which is always a great way to feel like you have no vendor to help you. Uh, cost protections and WAF discounts um, are all not included. Now, the thing about this one, I think we talked about this last time, is that if you have a DDoS attack that happens to ramp up your network traffic and IOs and all these things, and that, that's now costing you a lot of money, that whatever you're potentially saving on IP protection, you're probably going to lose when the DDoS actually happens because you didn't have cost protection uh, or a WAF discount. So really consider this one. You must be a real small business that doesn't need a lot to take advantage of this versus just paying a little bit of extra for the network version, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. And the network version also, you know, if you have multiple regions or anything else, like I've done this cost analysis before really quickly, you know, adds up because by the time you include the WAF discount, which is in there, it brings you from the premium tier of like application firewall down to like the normal tier pricing. If you have this really starts to add up quickly. Um, And, you know, also it will protect your whole VNet. So you don't have to deal with, okay, only these couple IP addresses are protected versus, you know, Everything in your VNet, you just attach it and you're done. So between just the WAF discount and the rapid response and then just everything in your VNet and not have to think about it, it definitely makes sense to look at the higher tier rather early and it's just a flat fee
1: at that point. This is why we brought Matt on the show because he's got yep. an Azure experience. I've had to deal with this pain <laughs> before. <laughs> But yeah, it makes it makes logical sense. Like between cost protection and your WAF discount, that you know you really have to have a small workload that doesn't really need a lot of protections. Uh, which then you had to que- ask the question: Do I really need DDoS protection, or am I just checking a box for some compliance reason? Um,
2: it's so. mainly that checking of the box. I feel like at that point, or you're a really small business that just you know wants to uh, have that, or has been attacked before. It's the only other thing I can think of. You've been hit before by DDoS. You know, and you just want to throw something up quickly.
1: I, I can tell you, if I hosted the CloudPod website there, I would want the network one. I wouldn't want <laughs> just the uh, the free one because, uh, yeah, I I've seen all the traffic that the WAF removes from our site. There's a lot of bots out there. There's a lot of crap that just tries to scan the internet constantly that uh, we filter out with AWS. So thanks AWS, we appreciate. I mean,
2: you AWS. could go from two hundred dollars to like two thousand dollars. You know, for the first hundred, so. It's just a, it's a big price difference, but adds up quick. But if you have multiple things, it just gets really knocked down really fast.
1: Yeah. I mean, scale brings discounts, right? And this is one of those opportunities where your scale is now driving you to a different tier that gives you other benefits. So the ultra premium DDoS experience I'm looking forward to in the future though. So... All right. Well, this is where we talk about cloud journey, and you know we're still in the middle of our cloud native series. Uh, but this week we're going to be about Kubernetes, and since we couldn't get Ryan uh, out of bed, we decided <laughs> that we should try to skip it this week. Uh, and so we're gonna wait. We're gonna wait for Kubernetes uh, until next week. Uh, and if you'd like to complain about it, you can reach Ryan on Twitter at at uh, one thats ryron one You can complain to him that he didn't, he wasn't here today, um, or you can email him directly at Ryan at thecloudpod.net. Just saying, yeah. If you wanted to complain, or on the Slack channel, even you could. You know, lots of ways you can complain at Ryan, uh, which he loves. So you definitely need to make sure you do that. Uh, that's uh, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, have a great week, I guess, ahead, and uh, hopefully it ends soon because Wednesday feels like it should be Friday already.
2: <laughs> have a good one, guys. Yep. Have a good night.
1: And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.